0: Well, if you would again, uh, take out your Bibles, and let's turn to Genesis chapter 3, and today we'll be looking at verses 14 through 24, Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 14, Uh, this is of course uh, on the heels of man falling into sin, and then the questioning which God had made to them. This is God's holy, inspired, and inert word. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from it from which he is taken. He drove out the man And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this reading of your word we pray, God, that you would be with this, your servant. We pray that we, as we study this, we may come to a richer understanding, that we may grow in our knowledge of your word and the promises that are found in it. Bless this time, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when I was a child, my father would sometimes say this. He would say, This. Is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. In the moment of discipline, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. Maybe your father or mother said that to you as a child. As a child, I never really understood this since I was the one experiencing physical pain. I was the one getting the spanking. How was this going to hurt him more than it was going to hurt me? Now, as a parent, of course, I think I have a better understanding of this. Good parents discipline their children. Because to not do so is to teach our children that sin doesn't matter. Well, when Adam and Eve fell into sin by eating of the tree of knowledge, they had broken the covenant with God, they had violated God's commandment, and they were guilty of cosmic treason. For they had sought in their action to displace God as the ultimate authority in all of life. But when God came came to his creatures, when he came into the garden, he did not come like an angry tyrant, and truthfully, and rightly he could have, he could have come simply to destroy his creatures, been done with the whole lot. But instead, God came as a loving father. And he questioned the man and the woman, and in doing so demonstrates justice, true justice. And when he finally brings his discipline, he does not bring immediate death, though he could have. God does not destroy his image bearers, but he deals with them graciously. He shows mercy, and he brings promise and hope of redemption to them. They were to experience pain in this world. That was certain. He, he, but even in the midst of these punishments, God gives hope. Mankind would be redeemed. In fact, the process of that redemption began in the garden. God was going to rescue his sons. And although they eventually would die, the man and the woman would, for now, live. There would be a continuation of humanity. And there would come a seed, one who would come and save his people from their sin. And in doing so, it crushed the the head of the serpent, so that you and I could be called, truly be called, sons of God. And this is what we're looking at today. The curse, which were, which, curses which were brought against humanity and all of creation because of the sin of Adam and the covenant of grace, the gospel in seed form, which is planted and which gives hope of redemption and would come to full fruition in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we begin, we would call that uh, we saw this last week, that God was questioning the man and the woman. And so as God ends his inquiry, he turns first to the serpent. And he makes a statement which echoes the question he had put to the woman, saying, because you have done this... Now you'll note that the serpent isn't questioned himself. The the man was questioned, the woman was questioned, but the serpent, he is not questioned. He's not given any opportunity to explain his part in what has occurred, but he is justly judged. Now in each case, that is the man and the woman and the serpent, you'll note there's also a correspondence between the actions taken and the curses given. I recall that chapter 3 opens with the craftiness of the snake. He was more clever than all the beasts of the field. Here, he is now more cursed than all the beasts of the field. You see, the serpent had come slithering quietly onto the scene, cleverly deceiving the woman through half-truths and innuendo. Now, he will be judged as the most cursed, having to endure the humiliation of going about on his belly all of his days. He would eat dust, as it were. Now, it is not, of course, that dust is a diet of serpents. It's not like snakes go around eating dirt. That's actually to miss the point. The idea of being expressed is that of humiliation... He would be brought low. And we also should bear in mind that what is in view here is not necessarily the serpent as a creature. God is not opposed to reptiles or snakes, as it were, although maybe some of you would think that God ought to be uh, opposed to snakes. But it isn't the case that God is opposed to snakes. What's in view here is the curse which is brought about to Satan himself. That's that's what's in view here. It is Satan who will all of his days be humiliated like a snake which eats dust all of its life. Satan's act against God and against humanity will continually bring humiliation to himself and to all those who are allied with him. The serpent's eating of dust anticipates God's pronouncement against man who is made of dust and shall return of dust. The snake who is responsible, at least in part, for the demise of man will eat dust all of his days, which is what man will return to. Thus, therefore, for the serpent as well as for the man, is a constant reminder of the crime which they had committed against God. Man will toil in the dirt. Satan will eat it. And so the humiliation of Satan will result in something else, as the devil is humiliated, this will bring about hostility and enmity. Hostility between him and the offspring of the woman. Because the serpent was the instrument in the undoing of the woman, her seed will be the instrument of undoing for him. His action, in a sense, sowed the seeds of his own defeat and destruction. This is the ultimate curse which comes upon Satan. He will be destroyed and finally defeated by the descendant of the woman. It is here at this point that we see a basic division among humanity. One are those who are in allegiance to Satan, this is the seed of the serpent. The other are those who have their allegiance to God through the seed of the woman, the seed that is the promised one who would come. Of course, we understand this is speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what we have here is the first promise of the gospel. This is the gospel in seed form. No pun intended. This is marvelous, isn't it? Humanity has been plunged into ruin because of sin. Man has rebelled against his creator. And yet, there is a promise made of hope. There will be a man, that is the seed of the woman, who will one day come onto the scene, and he will crush the serpent in all of his power. And the enmity, then, between the offspring of the woman, that is, all of mankind, and the offspring of the serpent, then, is a prototype of what is to come, or, from our vantage point, what has already come in Christ, and what will finally be completed on the day of the Lord. Now, here, there is an important theme in the, New Te- in the Old Testament uh, which relates to this word seed or offspring, depending on your translation. Uh, the Hebrew word is Zerah, and is commonly used to speak of descendants. Now, throughout the narrative of Genesis, you can trace this golden thread, which begins here in Genesis chapter 3, and ultimately you could trace that thread all the way to the Messiah, Christ. And so in promising the coming of an offspring, or the seed, the seed of the woman God is, even in the midst of bringing judgment, is giving now the covenant of grace. The seed of the woman, in a general sense, is the church of Jesus Christ, under the headship of Jesus Christ, and in particular is speaking of Christ himself. This is certainly what the Apostle Paul thought when he wrote in Romans chapter 16, in verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. You see, it's the church who will be victorious over Satan because Jesus was victorious over sin at the cross and victorious over death in the empty tomb and will finally and completely be victorious on the last day, when He returns again in glory. This is why Paul says in Romans 16, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. But in the meantime, there's enmity. There's strife between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Now this is seen almost immediately. We see this in the strife between Cain and Abel. Chapter 4, immediately you start seeing the enmity and strife come. Further, this strife continues into the days of Noah. Sin is rampant, but there is a righteous remnant. Noah, a preacher of righteousness in his family. The serpent will cause some damage. He will bruise his heel. Abel is murdered. People fall into the traps of sin. Satan seems to rule over the nations. He seems to have power over the nations. But the head of the serpent will finally and completely be crushed. So even at that point when it seemed that Satan is doing his most damage... At that moment when the Messiah was being led to die, the cursed death on the cross, when it seemed in some sense that Satan was at at his most glorious place of power, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It is at the cross that the head of the serpent is crushed. For it is here that Jesus by His perfect obedience, and in His blood has secured for us an eternal redemption. And so what we see here in Genesis chapter 3, again, is the gospel in seed form. It is the hope of generations that God will defeat the enemy and that mankind will be restored again to what they once were. Were. But in the meantime, there will be great trouble for the woman and for the man. And this is now where we come to the pain which they will experience. Starting in verse 16 pain and labor. Now, it should be pointed out that unlike the penalties announced against the serpent and the man, the word curse is not used in relation to the woman's suffering. Interesting. But for, for all the, but for all the things which they did naturally will now be frustrated and miserable. The serpent will eat dust. We've seen this already. But for the woman, pain will accompany her labor in bearing children. And for the man, we will see in a minute that his labor and work will also be in pain. But even as God promises a multiplication of pain, there is also again hope. For the woman will live to have children. Remember, they were told that if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. But, he's told, but she's been told already at the curse of the serpent... That a seed from her will crush the head of the head of the serpent. And if you're gonna have children and you're gonna have a pain in childbearing, that means you're having children. She will have children. She will live. And so here we see grace. Her difficult labor and childbearing reflects the labor and toil of her husband in the field. In each case, humiliation is the very thing they were uh, they're being humiliated in the very thing that they were created to do. So, in addition to her pain and labor, God declares to the woman, "Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you." Now, in the newest versions of the ESV, uh, I, I think it has an unfortunate bit of interpretation, which may, may or may not be correct, but I will say it's not clear in the text itself. Now, literally, the Hebrew is this, and to your husband will be your desire, and he will rule over you. Now, this, this phrase this whole section is not easily understood and, I should point out, is not without some controversy. And now, there are, there are a couple of different ways we could read this. First, we need to consider the term desire. Now the word only shows up two other times in the Hebrew, in, in the Hebrew Old Testament. Once in chapter 4, verse 7, and then in connect, which is in connection with Cain. And the other time, in the Song of Solomon, having to do with sexual desire. So those are the only two other times, other than here, that it's used. So three times in the Hebrew uh, Old Testament. Um, So, which is to say that there... uh, Well, so anyway, one, one way we can understand this clause, your desire shall be for your husband, is to connect it to the previous clause dealing with childbearing. If we understand those to be in parallel, then the idea is that despite the painfulness of childbearing, the woman will continue to have desire for her husband. Which is to say that there would be the blessing of procreation despite any possible reluctance because of painful deliveries. Now what supports this view is the consideration of the promised seed from verse 15. God will ensure that the promised one comes. That's one possible reading of this. Another possibility is to view the desire more broadly. In the fall, the woman had acted independent of her husband, and so the penalty is now for her to be dependent on him and to and to submit to him, which he will gladly oblige by ruling over her. She will want her husband in a variety of ways. Now this view does not necessarily totally exclude the previous one, but adds another dimension to it. The final view I'll mention is uh, focuses more on the next clause, and he will rule over you, and sees the connection closely with chapter 4 and verse 7 with Cain. Now, those who hold this view contend that what is in view is a struggle between the sexes. Desire, then, is uh, the woman's attempt to control her husband, And that will be frustrated by the man who will rule over her. Now, each of these views have their merits, uh, grammatically and exegetically, perhaps even in your own experiences. And perhaps it is best to view both the curse and the hope in each of these statements. Although we cannot be certain precisely, and we would be wise not to draw too many conclusions, it seems evident that as a result of the fall into sin, the relationship between the husband and wife has been impacted, and largely in a very negative way. Husbands and wives do not relate to one another as we ought to. We sin against one another. We abuse one another. There are times that each tried to control and manipulate the other. Now this is, of course, in degrees from marriage relationship to marriage relationship. I'm not throwing out accusations right now. But not one of us who are married can say that we have the perfect marriage, can we? In addition, it is also easy to see the faults of our spouse. It's easy to see where, where, in a way, we end up being like Adam. It's the woman you gave me. Because of sin, what, was, what once was to be a complementary relationship between a husband and a wife is met with frustration. And you have to admit, if you're married, you have times where you are frustrated with your spouse. That's experience we all have. But even with the problems which marriage relationship has because of sin, God gives us hope because Christ redeems the marriage relationship. Even as there is a penalty for sin, there is still the blessing and grace of children from the woman. Painful as that may be, and she will live, she will have children and from her husband, with her husband, And An offspring will come, one that the generations look forward to. And so even in this curse, there is hope. Still under the heading of pain and labor, we come to the final word, and that is what comes to the man. And to Adam, as as to the others, the punishment fits the crime. It says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree. So here God pinpoints for Adam the reason for the punishment. Adam had listened to his wife and ate of the tree of knowledge which God had explicitly commanded him not to eat. Because he had done this, the work which he had been called to, that is to work the garden and to keep it, was now cursed. Verse 17, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So just as a woman was to experience pain in childbirth, the man was to experience pain in the realm of his labor, that is, in the field. The ground itself would be cursed on account of Adam. Now, you also want to notice that this curse does not only apply to Adam. This curse is for all of mankind. the curse uh, cur- the ground is itself is cursed. The ground is cursed for you and me. And if you ever have a garden, you understand how cursed the ground can be for me it 's generally very cursed. I'm really good at growing weeds. <laughs> All, all work for food was now to be in toil, was to be hard, was to be painful. The ground is cursed. Adam's sin caused pain for us. And further, as we read in Romans, when Adam sinned, we all sinned. His disobedience led to condemnation, not only for himself, but for all of mankind. Romans 5.18 Adam was acting as a federal head for all of humanity. And so not only was he cursed, but all of creation was cursed as well. The earth itself was cursed. Working is now toil, and it will produce thorns and thistles along with food. Adam will toil on and on in life without relief until death. In this sense, Adam is pictured as a weary, broken farmer who works and works his fields, striving but he's, deri- he's having to derive his very sustenance from the drudgery of his labor. And his enjoyment of food is spoiled because he is so tired and weary. It's so like the woman's pain in childbirth, the blessings of his daily labor have, have, are painful. They're, they're, they're full, filled with woe. and This is a constant reminder of sin's reward. Adam would literally work until he dies. Verse 19, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Adam was made from the dust, he shall work the dust to the ground in sweat and in tears, and he shall return again at the end. This is the great reversal of things. Adam will return physically to that which he had been made from. God had breathed life into his body that he had formed from dust. Now man's life would be misery. He will deteriorate. And he will die And that body which God had formed will now break down again to dust. And this is not for Adam alone. It's true for all of humanity, for all men and women. This is the bad news, right? But even here, even here there's grace. Even there, there's hope. First, Adam was not struck down immediately. He was given time to reproduce, to repent, and to be redeemed. Promise was given to him. And although he was now excommunicated from God's presence, you see he's driven from the garden, and he's driven from the life-sustaining tree of life, he is given hope for life and salvation which was to come. Adam could repent of his sin. Adam's being driven out of the garden seals his fate. No longer was he to enjoy close communion with God in that garden temple. Nevertheless, he would not be forever cut off from God. In fact, the driving of the man and woman out of the garden ensures that they can be redeemed. For if he had eaten from the tree of life, he would then live forever separated and alienated from his Creator. Adam being driven out was actually grace. And so even in the penalty... We see hope for restoration. And so without the tree of life now, Adam is going to die. And the genealogies after Adam record generation after generation after generation of human beings who live and die. Physical death has come because of Adam. This is our lot. We will all die unless Jesus returns in our lifetime. But there's more that we can say. For the spiritual sense, the lost sinner is already dead. They are spiritually dead and must be made alive in Christ by the Holy Spirit. All generations since Adam have inherited Adam's sin nature and have been excluded from the garden. We do not naturally have the presence and blessings of God, but the second Adam, that is Jesus Christ, has rescued us by faith in Him. He has given to us, His people, the life-giving Holy Spirit, through which the mortal will inherit immortality, and the garden will be inherited and will be renewed in the new heavens and new earth. And so even as the man is driven from that place of blessing, God was working immediately to restore man and to restore for man that which was lost. And so after these words of curse are delivered to Adam, we read in the text that Adam calls his wife Eve, and he calls her that because she was the mother of all living. Now again, in this way, we see the hope of life uh, and of generations to come. In the curse, Adam understood that Eve would live. She's going to have pain in childbirth. You know, she might have focused on the pain part. He's like, she's going to have children. I'm sure she understood that too. There's going to be life. And he calls her Eve because this is, a, this is actually a word play in Hebrew on the word life. He calls her life. She's called Eve because from her all human life would come. And so in this way, Adam is actually acting in faith in the covenant promises of God. It is not in naming her, by the way, that he's somehow taking dominion over her or something. No, he calls her life because this is an act of faith. He believes God if there is to be a seed to come from the woman who would crush the serpent's head, then it must be that all of humanity will find their source of life from her. And so it seems that Adam has learned, in the most difficult way possible, perhaps, that he was to be obedient to God's word and to believe God's promises. He believed God, but there would be the seed who would come from Eve would set all things right. I think what we see here is Adam walking in faith. A sinner who is looking forward to the author and finisher of his faith. Well, immediately after this, the Lord God then fashions for the man and the woman garments of skin to clothe them. That is, what, he do- what God does is he covers their shame. Recall that after they sinned and they found themselves to be naked and ashamed, they fashioned for themselves loincloths from fig leaves. Just as the woman's pain and the man's toil are constant reminders of their disobedience, clothing also confirmed their sinfulness. They could no longer walk before God blameless. They've been exposed, and their exposure must now be covered because of their shame. But the clothing which they wear also shows God's gracious provision. God made them clothes to cover their shame. It is God who covers our shame. And again, we see the hints of salvation from God alone. Here, God provides garments made from skins. In Leviticus chapter 7, verse 8, the skins of animals offered for a sin offering or a guilt offering was reserved for the priest who offered it. Here, God gives them to Adam as a free gift. Now, the text does not state this explicitly, but it's at least implied that God offered the sacrifice. God sacrificed an animal so that the sin and guilt offering could be offered for His image bearers, that they may be covered. This is a wonderful picture of the Gospel, isn't it? Just as God offered an animal so that the sin of Adam could be covered, so too was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb that was slain so that you and I by faith may be clothed in His righteousness and so that our sins could be covered and paid for. Again, this is the gospel in seed form. The animal skin coverings then is a precursor to the sacrificial system which would come. In fact, the Hebrews, who were the original audiences, they would have connected this. They would have seen the connection between the garden and the tabernacle later. And of course, the sacrificial system itself, in the the Mosaic law, further points to salvation which is brought through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In all of these cases and illusions, one thing is clear. It is God who is setting about to rescue His wayward son, Adam. Through the Son of God, the second Adam, who would redeem His people and set us free from sin. It is God who is making the initiative. It is God who is making the promises. And what marvelous promises they are. What salvation he has brought in Christ. Indeed, his mercies are new every morning. And so this brings us back to where we started. Even as God is bringing a curse upon the earth for the sin of Adam, even in the midst of all of that, even when God could have just wiped us all out and been done with the whole thing, he brings blessing. And promise. God's discipline then came for the purpose of teaching and preparing His people for glory, which is to come. We read this in Hebrews chapter twelve, which speaks of this. He says, "My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves, and chast- chastises every son whom He receives." This is wonderful. Promise, isn't it you see in in Genesis God was treating Adam as a son a son who needed to be disciplined so that he might exhibit the fruit of righteousness and this is true for you and me as well you and I experience the discipline of the Lord for we are like our first father Adam we are sinners but in Christ we've been saved by grace through faith and so the Lord, may, the, the, the Lord may chastise you. The Lord may chastise me. But He does that because you are His Son. Our Heavenly Father treats us as sons, as those whom He disciplines. For even in His discipline, even in His displeasure, He is a loving Father who is showing marvelous grace. For Adam and for Eve, it was the promise of salvation. That promise made for them that was made for you and I as well, and is realized in Jesus. This is really marvelous, isn't it? The, the grace to sinners. Even in, in this disobedience, God has set forth to rescue us from the pit. And so, beloved congregation, I urge you find your hope in Jesus the author and finisher of your faith. Trust in the promises of God. For it is only in Christ that what is wrong in the world can be made right. It is only in Christ that that sin which is yours can be paid for and your shame can be covered and that you could be made son and an heir of the promise. Trust in Christ. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this this wonderful gospel. The marvelous truth that you are a loving Father who has come. And though you discipline your Son, you bless Him as well. We thank you that you treat us as your sons through Jesus Christ, the second Adam, the only begotten Son who in all respects where the first Adam failed, he has done, Jesus has done what is right and true and good. And we thank you that through him and through his sacrifice that our sins have been covered, that they've been paid for at the cross. And we thank you that even here that uh, that we see the, the, the golden thread traced where, you have, where you're seeking the lost and bringing them into your kingdom. Father, we thank you for what you've done for us here. We pray that we would see many coming to, to faith in Jesus. May your gospel go forth from this place around this world. In the name of Christ is glorified.